Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here once again on Saturday morning at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to hopefully give you some good insights so you can make some informed decisions about uh, your own holdings. Yesterday, the Dow closed at 25,871. It was down 208 points for the day. Yesterday was called a quadruple witching day where... Index options and futures uh, all expire at the same time, and so that creates some inherent uh, volatility that really has no fundamental bearing on anything. In any regard, the S&P closed at 3096, NASDAQ higher at 99.46, the uh, gold price at 17.40 an ounce, silver at 17.62 an ounce, crude at 37.95 a barrel, 10-year treasury at 0.69%, and sulfite wheat at 580 a bushel. Week over week, uh, everything was higher except for uh, the soft white wheat, which was off 15 cents a bushel. Now, this next week, we're going to be getting existing home sales uh, report on Monday, new home sales report Tuesday. Thursday, we'll have the second revision of the first quarter GDP figures, which is there's usually three. And so this will be the second of those. And Again, this is old news. It's just going to be data, and so I just kind of <laughs> blow it off, I guess, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Now, uh, one thing to keep in mind as far as the GDP, the quarter we're in now, the second quarter, is likely going to be <laughs> worse than the first, and it could show the steepest, steepest drop in real GDP for any quarter since right after World War II. And so what the future looks like to the traders uh, will determine just how the market responds to that bit of news when it becomes official. Now, this past week, too, um, Monday, we had quite a move. Uh, the Dow had dropped as much as 762 points, but it flipped around and wound up closing higher by 157 points. And Frank Capillari, he's executive director at Instanet, said that uh, this uh, positive reversal was one for the ages. He said if there was ever an example of unadulterated dip buying, we saw it then. And I think it's a good thing to remember, too, that in a market recovery, no market moves in a straight line. And I also think that it's too premature to suggest a second wave of virus uh, having enough negative surprise to drive stocks materi materially lower for long is near. Um, because, you know, that's been talked about for a long time. It's what they call in the market. So in any case, uh, the Fed met list last week. Um, and a, one takeaway is that the monetary policymakers are set to keep our short-term interest rates near zero for as far as the eye can see. Well, maybe not forever, but at least until 2023. Um, Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed, said that the Fed is not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. I'd say that's putting it off, yeah. In other words, not even on their radar. And one other thing that comes up, and I think he put paid to that, and I'm quoting, he says, in the case of negative rates, in other words, you know, like less than zero, we've pretty much decided that's not something we think is attractive for us in the United States. Amen, sir. And he says, uh, 
we, I also think, meaning Mr. Powell, think that we at the Fed need to keep our foot on the, gra- on the gas until we're really sure that we're through this. That's sort of our intention, and I think you may find there's more for Congress to do as well. So jumping over to the economy, uh, and I'll be talking more about volatility in another segment here today, but talking about the economy in general, something I think is helpful to keep in mind you know, whether you're in a recovery or whatever we call normal markets, uh, share price moves, you know, they're characterized by how they respond to news that directly affects them. It's always a question of better or worse than. So in this past week, while the data itself may have looked poor in some cases compared to where we were earlier this year, the responses you're seeing in shares, and again, markets are anticipatory, uh, the, the responses you see in shares and the market are all about better than expected. What matters right now is the path forward, and we've started down that path at a healthy clip. For instance, we had an absolute blowout number for retail sales in May. They were up 17.7%. That was way out over even the most optimistic estimate from forecasters who had suggested something like an 8% gain. And that's, uh, again, uh, however, and here's the case, overall retail sales still down 6% from a year ago. So this is better than you saw a good response in uh, the retail sector uh, when that news came out. And again, looking forward, uh, Labor Department uh, on jobless numbers show that first-time claims were one and a half million folks, which is still way above what we had had uh, prior to this virus. But it is a deceleration in the number of initial claims, so better than. Uh, New York Manufacturing Survey, which the F- New York Fed puts out, and I'm quoting, area firms were notably more optimistic that conditions would be better in six months with the Index for Future Business Conditions rising to its highest level in more than 10 years. Now, that's pretty positive. Uh, oh, here's a, here was a good one. U.S. home construction, which was down in April and May, jumped up 4.3%, excuse me, April and March, jumped up 4.3% in May. So, obviously, the demand for housing remains intact, and, and builder sentiment jumped up a ton, the largest one-month increase ever. Um so the builders apparently like what they see on their horizon. Mortgage applications uh, at 21% higher than a year ago. Here's a benefit of the low interest rate. It is the ninth consecutive week of gains in the highest volume in more than 11 years. Now, obviously, that's national, but it's still the overall trend. And it says here that the average uh, contract interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage um, is now about 3.3%. And finally, um, Americans are returning to the skies. Uh, Passenger traffic at U.S. airports has doubled since May 16th and has quadrupled since the low that happened in uh, in April. So, as we like to say, the trend is our friend. And uh, a couple notes from some analysts about uh, the outlooks uh, for at least how they see the market. One, (coughs) excuse me, uh, not so great. According to Bank America Merrill Lynch's Global Fund Survey, a record number of market participants, now these are the so-called institutional and professional investors, uh, these guys, uh, consi- a record number of them considered the stock market to be overvalued. Now, a net of 
percent of their investors that they track in June said they think the stock market is overpriced the most since they began the survey in 98. And, uh, okay, uh, here's here's the numbers. Um, they showed that they pulled $2.1 billion from stocks last week. That was the second straight week of stock outflows. Uh, and uh, some of it was some stocks. Hedge funds took it out. Here's another guy adding to the uh, negativity. His name's Jerry Grant. Excuse me, Jeremy Grantham. He's an investor. He said he would advise investors to get out of U.S. stocks, noting my confidence is rising quite rapidly that this is the fourth bubble of my investment career. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean anything. These are just opinions. So, uh, and here, here's kind of a result of all this. Total savings deposits at U.S. banks are up 14% since March 9th. That's $11.4 trillion sitting in the bank, earning zero, nada, nothing. And, and money market funds are up as well, up 30% this year to $4.7 trillion. Now, you got to be pretty dang scared to be keeping all your money in, in a no-return environment. Mark Hafley, now, here's a chief investment officer for UBS Global Wealth Management, says he thinks there's more gains ahead. He said, we think that there's still room for stocks to move higher in both our central and upside scenarios. And let's see, Morgan Stanley's U.S. equity strategist, his name's Michael Wilson, raised his S&P target while reiterating his belief that the recovery will be V-shaped. And I'm quoting, he says, we remain firmly in the camp that the economy is likely to experience a V-shaped recovery, which is exactly what the equity market is foreshadowing. He raised his 12-month uh, S&P target to 33.50, and just for reference, it's about 3,100. So things are looking pretty okay. So um, do not leave the market. Stay with it. Things are trending higher, and if you're a long-term investor, what's going on in the market day-to-day uh, -day is really just perceptions in the marketplace right now about... Uh, you know, all the things that have been going on around us and folks are saying, you know, gee, this is all different. Well, John Templeton had a, a phrase that he came up with many years ago that I think is uh, still very accurate and certainly appropriate in today's markets. He said, uh, the four most costly words in investing, this time it's different. It really isn't different. It's just that all <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the innocent, I think. But uh, beyond that, everything is uh, pretty much as it has been in other cycles and other uh, bad markets and other recoveries. It's just that all the noise around it gets us confused. And, um, for example, uh, this past week, uh, Fidelity uh, had a news release. It said that of their clients, nearly a third of them who are 65 and older sold all their stock holdings. Now, of all investors that they have, apparently 18% sold their stuff. But the folks who are uh, fully grown or getting close to it, uh, a lot of them bailed. Uh, that's not good. Uh, and yet the market has continued to defy the expectations of a lot of folks, uh, uh, professionals, quote-unquote, as well as uh, those of us out here in the trenches. And it's recovered most of what it lost uh, going back to March 23rd. Now, for the most part, uh, many financial planners and advisors uh, have continued to recommend that folks who are approaching or in retirement 
to reduce their exposure to assets like stocks while at the same time increasing exposure to more so-called conservative investments like government bonds. Well, if someone needs the income from their portfolios for whatever purpose, this strategy can prove quite painful to investors. Now, the following is an extreme example for sure, but it gives you some idea of what I mean. As recently as perhaps 10 years ago, you could have had a chunk of your assets held in bonds and earned a reasonable income from it. But now let's say you need, uh, you've determined you need $50,000 a year for your retirement expenses. The 10-year U.S. Treasury note uh, 10 years ago was paying about 3.5%. So in order to create that $50,000 income, you would need cash in an account in the amount of about $1.5 million. You know, it just basically 3.5% of $1.5 million is about $50,000. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Now, I understand that most accounts wouldn't be just in bonds, but there are a number of folks who do uh, prefer to do things that way. So, here's the problem. Hope your income needs don't go up, because you'd either have to add money or cut down on those expenses. See, selling part of your holdings in a bond account uh, to create the cash you would need would also cut down on your basic asset pool, which in turn would lower your cash flow even further. And by the way, uh, for that same $50,000 in income today, with the 10-year U.S. Treasury at 0.70%, that stash O required cash needs to increase to about $7.2 million. So I'd say you better go look for that other job because it's a whole bunch of money. Now, if you were to study something called the efficient frontier, and there is such a thing, you can Google it, you would determine how much risk is needed to achieve a specific result. Now, at the left-hand side of that curve, uh, it, it is a parabolic curve, you'd see that 100% invested in government bonds, U.S. government bonds, is considered to be both the least risky and lowest returning asset. Makes sense. Highest quality stuff always pays the least. And you'd also see that a portfolio that's 70% in common stocks and 30% in uh, good quality bonds provides you a degree of safety that's very close to that of 100% bonds while also offering you a much better overall return. If you draw a line up from 100% bonds, it passes right through the 70-30 thing. So, you know, it's kind of truth is stranger than fiction a little bit. So don't pull out of the stock market all stock market altogether ever. Uh, you know, when you sell, you got to be right twice. One, you hope that the market's going to keep going down so it makes you look like you know what you're doing. And two, that the market is indeed going up when you get back in. However, that impulse to, be, to sell can be really overwhelming, especially when things are massively confused. And this is especially true for those folks who don't have a cash reserve to cover at least three to six months of living expenses. Now, we suggest that simply because it keeps you from having to dip into your pool of, uh, how would I say, more expensive assets such as stocks or bonds or whatever in order to create the money that you need. If you've got three to six months, uh, typically that's seen to be enough uh, to get you through and that covers your expenses. That's your ultimate. So again, if you're a new investor, uh, 
rule number one is don't be trying to be hustling to hurt stock and all that other kind of junk. Set up yourself with a three to six month cash reserve and then start looking for things to invest in beyond that. Now, how the recovery continues remains certainly clouded by uncertainty over whatever stimulus the Congress or the Feds might come up with, uh, the infection direction, and of course the drag of job losses. But the so-called L-shaped recovery, so you get a choice of letters in here. You know, there's V's and L's and S's and I don't know, W's, I don't know what else those people use. But anyway, the so-called L-shaped recovery where you see the activity staying depressed, well, that looks more remote, I think. Uh, that's one way to say it. And while the overall recovery may not be a V, as we had in 2008-9, it could also be a lot less wobbly than many folks are concerned about. Because, you know, let's go back to that 70-30 and how that would have worked out if you had gone back to 1990 so what is that, 30 years? Um, and uh, you had a split between 70% stocks and 30% bonds. 10000 invested back then would be worth about 128500 today. That's not chopped liver. That's pretty good. Now, again, though, <laughs> that was going through all the strange and unusual markets that we endured from 1990. Now, you may uh, recall that on the show we've talked before about I have this... Uh, behavioral finance advisor designation. I got that simply because I wanted to know more what drives folks about their financial decisions and their emotions. And because investors, many investors, very often panic out of these temporary declines, they refuse to acknowledge that the fault is largely theirs. You know, what they did is they turned a temporary decline into a permanent loss by selling. So this creates their need to characterize their stocks as risky and to term that which is simply volatility as risk. Now, this only leads to a, excuse me leads to a repetition of their bad behavior, and I think ultimately becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, this explains why we say to our clients, uh, even as corrections and worse have stampeded many of their peers out of stocks. The one thing which we're certain in the current firestorm of uncertainty, if your goals or needs have not changed, don't change your portfolio. What's to be gained? Market volatility, even extreme volatility, doesn't tell you much on its own. Recoveries never move in straight lines, and short-term swings aren't predictable, and they do not predict market direction, contrary to what some of the talking heads would have you believe. A key factor with market results is how does reality line up with expectations. See, what moves the market is not so much just the hard data, but are the data better or worse than expected? Currently, markets have been anticipating a second wave of virus for months. Well, this now calls into question whether the results we're seeing now are likely to prove worse than what investors feared have already factored into the stock price. So it can be a significant challenge to stay level-headed amid all these fearful headlines pontificating newsreaders and, of course, the market volatility, particularly given everything investors have had to deal with recently. Yet we continue to believe very strongly that your resilience is a key asset now and one we think you should continue to rely on. Now, in the last segment we were talking about volatility, I want to kind of expand on that a bit. Um, 
you may have noticed that share prices have lately been regularly rising or falling in 10 or 20 percent increments with many stocks. You know, stocks like Tesla and Netflix and Hertz and gosh, no, companies uh, you've never heard of all of a sudden are flipping and flopping all over the place. And it makes no sense because nothing major about the underlying businesses actually changes day to day. Uh, I happen to be teaching a uh, what would I call it? adult education class in 1987 in October when we had the one day sale where the market was off 22 percent, and that was interesting. Uh, but uh, the class people, and I, this was on the day it occurred, uh, they were wondering why I was there. I said, "Well, nothing changed but prices," and that's exactly the case here. The company, you know, uh, GM still made cars, McDonald's still made hamburgers, and Netflix, well, they weren't around then, but you know what I mean. So there has not been a single case where the increases or drops in share prices have reflected a one-to-one change in fundamentals for those companies. This doesn't happen. Fundamentals change slowly and aren't accurately represented in every tick of the stock, higher or lower. I believe it's worth remembering or realizing uh, that your emotions are the dominant force behind day-to-day price changes. Okay, not just yours, but everyone who is in the market that particular day. So you have to be aware of your triggers so you can act accordingly to either defend against yourself or to jump in with both feet. Now, there's a little bit of a... A note, only about one in 20 day traders remain profitable in the long run. Contrary to what these uh, folks at Robin Hood would like you to believe. But that's okay. Uh, I hope they're having fun. For investors, price is the only remotely related truth in the short term. And it basically mostly represents noise. Now I want to give you a series of numbers. You don't have to write them down. I'll tell you what they mean. But they're 12, 10, 6, 3, and 40. The heck is all that? Well, the first three numbers refer to the average annual compound percentage returns, say that three times fast, from 1926 for three asset classes. The three ad, excuse me, three asset classes are small company U.S. stocks, that was 12, large company U.S. stocks, which is 10, and the uh, long-term high-quality corporate bonds, which is 6. Now, we're using data from Ibbotson Morningstar, so round it off just a little bit. But the single most important number in this sequence was that last one, three. What's that? Well, that's the inflation rate going back, well, really a long time, but certainly back to at least 1926. That's been the average annual inflation rate in the U.S. So long-time investors should regard what I called nominal returns is, well, pretty much irrelevant, and to look at long-term returns in real terms, which is to say net of inflation. Uh, see, nominal returns are what uh, an investment, whatever kind of investment, generates before taxes, fees, and inflation. So if you're just looking at your statements or you're saying, well, I bought it for this and sold it for that, you get a, that's a nominal return. Um, and it simply reflects, it reflects the net change in price over time. Now, real return, the actual value of your returns after inflation, income tax, and fees. That 3% is the hidden tax. 
Uh, it isn't doesn't show up on anybody's statements that I'm aware of, but boy, oh boy, if you're not ahead of that, you're going to be uh, behind a curve big time when it comes to buying power, which goes back to what I was talking in the last segment about bonds, because um, at a 3% inflate, well, our inflation now is not 3%, admittedly, but it's still enough to where the bond rates are negative. You are guaranteed to have a negative income uh, just because of the way the math is right now. When you subtract inflation from returns of the three asset classes, you're going to find that stocks over time have provided twice to three times the returns of bonds consistently. So the question then becomes, why would an efficient market pay the stockholders of many companies basically twice what it pays the bondholders of those very same or closely related companies? And the default answer, which I think is the single misperception that consistently causes investors of all types to underperform, is quote-unquote risk. What? What's the long-term risk in an asset class, such as, oh, I don't know, say the S&P 500? It's trading nearly four times where it was 20 years ago. It's paying a dividend three times that it was paying then. Or what about at a level more than 10 times higher than it was 30 years ago, paying a dividend that has quintupled? I don't know that that's a bad thing. See, that's part of how that 12, 10, and 6, 12 and 10 came about. But, you know, what most investors do to mistake volatility, which is defined, the school solution, is cyclical temporary, temporary decline in stock prices. And they mistake that volatility for the risk of a permanent loss. And that only occurs if and when you close a position. So I don't see how volatility can be risk. Now, trying to time the market around the volatility, oh my goodness, that can cost you major. Let's say you had a million-dollar portfolio, and you had it again, just keeping friendly here, with the 70-30 mix of stocks and bonds. And that was January 1st of this year before all the bad news started leaking out. Now, by March 23rd, when we hit the bottom in the marketplace, your savings would be down to $780,000. Now, <laughs> that's noticeable for sure. Uh, and you might have been tempted to get out. But if you did, oh, whoa. <laughs> that very next day, March 24th, we had the biggest one-day jump in the Dow since 1933. It was up 11%, 2,112 points. See, because the way the market works, well, typically, is that the bad days follow the good days and vice versa. Um, so had you not sold, you know, you were down to $780,000, well, that one day brought you back to being down 830, excuse me, to where you were uh, had a value of $830,000. So not even, but you're a <laughs> that's a $50,000 jump in one day. I'll take that. Now, the recoveries can come in fits and starts, as we all know. Over the last 20 or so years, the S&P has produced, as I said earlier, that average annual return of about 6%. But here's the bad part. If you missed just the best 20 days, 20 days over 20 years. Now, what? I don't even know what that works out to be. But that's like, and which 20 was it? 
Nobody knows. But had you missed 20 days and 20 years by moving out in declines and then trying to reinvest later, your average annual return would be, you ready for this? One-tenth of 1%. Doesn't really pay off. That's why people say it's risky. That's because they got out. Now, despite what's going on now, which is unprecedented, but what's going on whenever now is, is always unprecedented. I've heard a lot of th things categorized over 40 years as, uh, oh, this will never happen, or this will always be like this, you know. No. Uh, but some things never change. If you can't, as an investor, tolerate losses, you're likely always also going to miss out on the gains. But the pain rarely lasts for too long. Chuck Schwab says that even aggressive stock-heavy portfolios took around just two years to recover from the 0708 drop. Now, I can feel impossible to imagine a different reality than the one you're currently engulfed in. Yet, we've been hit with worse disasters and devastation many times before, and the market has always bounced back. Do not give up now. I want to spend this last segment uh, not exactly on market stuff, but more like environmental stuff uh, in terms of attitude and things that are going on that can affect your decisions as well as those in the marketplace and just kind of give you at least my uh, my take on it. Now, you, know, you recall that I said earlier about John Templeton saying that uh, the biggest the most dangerous four words in investing are this time it's different. Well, there's a lot. There's a variation on that going on now, uh, which is, it's this changes everything. Heard that one, have you? Yeah, and okay, uh, you know, especially folks who haven't been through anything disquieting uh, in their lives, uh, I could see where they might feel that way. But, you know. The future is coming, and it's just a little quicker than previously scheduled. You know, huge events can have that effect. But hold that thought. Some of these uh, futurists, I don't know who these cats are. How do you get a job as a futurist? But anyway, uh, you know, they're all talking about the death of big cities, the collapse of colleges and public schools, end of retail stores and malls. Oh, don't even think about going to the office. What are you, nuts? Ride the bus? I don't think so. And if you want to go to a football game, you better have a hazmat suit on, right? Yeah, come on. You know, it, uh, they're saying that nothing will be familiar in the post-virus world. And for those of you who believe that inconceivable challenges await, um, the people in Brooklyn have a very fine bridge that is available for a timeshare. Right? I don't think they sell it outright anymore. But in any case, um, you know, there's three premises, well, a couple premises, I think, in human nature that are at work here. Past claims of change, well, they've never really panned out. September 11th, that was pretty damn horrible. Sorry, but it was. And 08 and 09, that was no trip to Hollywood either, was it? But, and they were both, you know, both changed everything. And, and, uh, Yet everything mostly kind of reverted to the way the things were in the prior lives. Big changes were mostly modest adjustments, relatively speaking. And that's been the case in all of these kinds of uh, 
things are never going to be the same again, events, at least in my personal experience. Now, incremental change is more likely. It, it, what changed, for example, in 2008 and 2009 is that uh, the banks got a lot more mm, defensive and they have better risk management tools so you don't have real concerns by the big banks. So that takes some of that onus off. And when there is genuine change, say like when the Wright brothers took a flight back in 03, <laughs> I don't know if it even, if, well, there was no evening news, but I think it was like page five in the local newspaper. Nobody really realized what was going on, and yet it did change everything. So, you know, it, big changes are like mm, kind of below the surface. They're slow moving. The stuff that happens day to day, it's noise, it gets your attention, you know, it's bright, shiny, little glittery stuff. It's, it's hard to say don't pay attention, but don't pay attention. Now here, for example, these guys talking about the deaths of cities. The, the expensive urban areas like New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, they've been seeing population drops for years. And some people say, well, that's going to accelerate. And a lot of that's simply because they, uh, folks, younger folks can't afford to live in expensive cities. <laughs> like San Francisco, I don't believe the prices in that town. Anyway, cities have been the dominant source of economic growth and cultural creativity and business energy for probably ever. And and that's because the social and intellectual capital of cities pretty attractive. So, you know, people like to go to there. Now, if the colleges are going to collapse, I think, you know, there's certainly a case that can be made that tuition costs are kind of way out of line. Uh, they've been consistently rising a lot faster than inflation for decades. But there is much to be said for the college experience. However, I don't feel personally that I'd like to shell out seventy grand for an online version of that, would you? It does seem to have the same kind of uh, chutzpah around it. Now, and two, the university degree is no longer a guarantee of a higher lifetime income, is it? I think you can see a lot of opportunities in careers uh, that don't require college, such as construction trades, uh, truck drivers, uh, all kinds of people that can make some really good money and have a really fine career and don't have to spend the time, effort, energy, and money to go to college. Doesn't make you a bad guy. So, no more offices? Nay, nay, we're not going to the office. We're going to do Zoom. We're going to do Skype. We're going to do FaceTime. <laughs> I hope not. But anyway, did you realize, were you aware, that these technologies have been around for a long time? years or decades people are simply just realizing that hey look what what look what's out there you know this is uh pre-lockdown stuff but it's all news to the folks that are using it but the outsourcing of cheaper excuse me of workers to cheaper economic areas that's been around forever remote work has also been around too and you can see, too, if you look at uh, real estate investment trusts, those in the category of uh, multifamily and retail office space, they're not doing quite as well as those that are oriented toward warehouses, data centers, and storage areas, because that's where the growth is. Now, oh, yes, we're ending retail stores and malls. Now, this is the longest trend of them all. You know, Amazon uh, went public in 97. They started taking market share right away. And the rest of the internet joined in with online retailers now uh, 
they take in about 15% of sales. However, we're seeing Target, Walmart, Home Depot, Kohl's, a lot of other places getting better at competing with uh, the big guy. And, excuse me, many analysts believe that we, we, the U.S., has been over-retailed for multiple years and with much too much physical retail space. So stay tuned. We may get an adjustment there as well. And, oh, yes, suburbia. The American dream, owning your own home, backyard, some nature, never more attractive than this lockdown. A lot of folks who have been in tiny apartments, especially in the major cities, uh, I, that's that's a tough thing. Uh, they have been uh, you know, looking out those windows saying, oh, if I can get out and move to the suburbs, I'll just do so. But once I can, that probably will change. You know, um, without this adaptation capacity, I think that folks, that us people, would be in deep kimchi, you know, it just, we wouldn't be able to change. Now, lots will change, and many things are already changing, even before this dang virus, and assume this trends will accelerate. You know, it's the phrase I use a lot because it's true. It's the certainty of uncertainty. Nothing is for sure in the marketplace except that the exchanges open and close every day. What happens with prices? (laughs) That's subject to to, uh, negotiation, isn't it? And uh, so there's really nothing new as such. As I said earlier, the names are changed, the specific instances are changed. To me, a lot of what's going on right now is uh, the mid-60s uh, phase two. Uh, and again, the only people that are changed are, uh, how would I say, just uh, clones of the people that were doing the same kinds of things in the mid-60s. So, you know, cycles, just like everything. Markets are cycles. The economy is cycles. Society is cycles. So with that, I will end. And uh, for those of you who are fathers uh, and either have or had a father, happy Father's Day. I hope you have a grand day tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 o'clock Pacific to talk to you again about markets and the economy. And if you have questions uh, that you'd like answered, uh, send us an email. Send it to money at kxoy.com and we'll certainly put it on the air and try and give you some uh, good answers. So please come back next week. We'll be glad to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.